Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hi, uh, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm Pamela Fuentes, the host of the channel. Thanks for being with us today. Because we have a, a really interesting conversation with uh, Dr. Nicole von Hermeten about her new book, Profit and Passion, Transactional Sex in Colonial Mexico. Nicole, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's an honor to be on. Uh, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. Yeah, I um, got into the topic of Latin American history in college, um, because I really enjoyed studying the poetry in Spanish. I had a Spanish minor, so my inspiration all along has been um, literature, especially Baroque-era poetry. So that's really where I started getting into using primary sources. Um, and I, I think that comes out in this book a little bit. It has a lot of literary influences. So that's that's what really got me going. And I've... I've um, my most of my training happened at UC Berkeley under um, Professor William Taylor, who's uh, really renowned in this field for the history of religion. So I I worked with him um, in the late '90s, early 2000s, and that's where I started working on the African diaspora. So I have two publications that um, deal with Afro-Mexican um, Catholic brotherhoods, and the second one is a translation of the um, 1627 Alonso de Sandoval guide for missionaries, Jesuit missionaries in Cartagena. So through studying Cartagena um, via Alonso de Sandoval is when I started going into um, gender and sexuality topics. So that's kind of how I got back to studying gender and sexuality in New Spain after working on it um, for several years in Colombia. So that's kind of a brief background as to what got me to this point. And how did you come to write Profit and Passion? Yeah, so this was my last book that came out in 2013, uh, Violence and Life, Violent Ends. Um, it was about honor and sexuality and witchcraft in Cartagena. And um, 
There I was using uh, for the Office of the Spanish Inquisition cases, as well as cases that had been appealed to the Audiencia in Boeta. So I was just trying to figure out themes. Um, and luckily, I had a colleague who, was, who gave me advice as well. A lot of these cases you're studying have to do with honor. So I'm really grateful to her for mentioning that, because that kind of gave me a theme for that book. But as I was looking at these cases that had um, that were stored in uh, Bogota and the National Archive there, uh, as I said, Audiencia appeal cases from Cartagena, I found um, one case, or I, there was one case on file that had to do with actually a murder of a woman who was known um, as a so-called uh, public woman, a mujer pública. It's pretty clear that she actually did um, this work. She did exchange sex for money. There's a lot of evidence there. But on the other hand, um, she was killed by a kind of a conspiracy involving her um, estranged husband. And, you know, he could have also um, kind of downgraded her reputation on purpose um, to kind of explain it as a sort of an honor-based killing. So before I had read that case, I had never thought that there was sex work in Latin America at this time in the 1500s, you know, basically in the viceregal period. So I hadn't really known about that. I hadn't really read about it in any of the secondary sources. And here this case from 1656 in Cartagena is talking about it like it's completely normal and it's a very well-known activity that, that goes on in the main plaza and the center of town and I just kind of wondered, how, how come I don't know about this? Why isn't this a well-known occupation or way of life or a view of looking at gender and sexuality? So that's, that one case really uh, inspired me on this topic because I, it was just a big blank. And, and, you know, I looked at various footnotes of other authors who had very briefly mentioned it, and they said this is extremely rare uh, to find a reference to um, selling sex, to a brothel, et cetera. So that's just, that's just got, what got me curious. And, um, you know, I, I'm most familiar with the National Archive in Mexico City. And as a historians of this field know, that's a um, fantastic archive. So I thought that I would like to study this topic as, as much as possible. So I thought probably the best records I could find would be in Mexico City at the Lecumberi, um, the National Archive there. And so um, I looked up cases that were similar to the one that I had for Cartagena, but it, that's just what inspired me that there seemed to be a huge gap in this area, and it seemed to be somehow something that people that didn't didn't really want to talk about, or you know, uh, wasn't the type of topic that we wanted to deal with in the field. So that's what struck me that maybe this is something I could help fill in a bit. And you know, hearing about your uh, formation in literature and all of your knowledge in the archives. That actually makes sense in how you structured the book and the use of words. Something that I appreciate particularly is how careful you are at analyzing and using the words and the change on the words and the change of practices. So I wanted to ask you, why did you decide to use transactional sex, not only as the title of your book, but as a constant category of analysis throughout your research? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I mean, the, this is something I talk about with my students and, and people all the time. I mean, and it's even an archival theory question that, that I try to discuss throughout, but it's something in the introduction. I mean, 
what do we call this situation that I'm talking about? So the change in vocabulary is so key. And as I tell my students frequently, the word prostitution is not an accurate word. And even fantastic historians, um, we recently read in my class a book by Judith Walkowitz and Louise White, they use the term prostitution. But I wanted to be much more careful with my terms, as you said. So prostitution is when people are selling sex and it's a criminal act or at least a regulated act that can be criminalized in some context. So not only did they not use the word prostitution in the 1500s and 1600s, it wasn't criminal. So it's just completely anachronistic to use the term prostitution. And prostitution implies a kind of social um, marginalization that also was inaccurate. So what word do you use? Well, I... You know, there's words from the time, but the words that are um, theoretically good to use in this field, talking about the present, are obviously sex work, or um, one that's used a lot in historiography and um, ethnography relating to Africa is transactional sex, because it's, it's the idea of exchange that can be interpreted really broadly. So, of course, those words are anachronistic as well to the time period under discussion, but they're not negative. They're categories of analysis that we can use without having this criminalizing effect. I, I recently thought of this in class, that it's like the terms that we use, such as illegal, that that's not a term that has a political value that you don't want to apply to the people you're discussing. So the same, that's why you wouldn't use the term prostitution. It's saying this person's occupation is illegal. So I had to take a better word that was in a modern context still doesn't apply, but it's just a category of analysis. So that's what I try to do in the introduction is say, like, if you have a system like this system where they have the dowry and the um, declaration cases that are um, compensated by, by monetary, you know, uh, compensation for the women who sue men for declaration or breach of promise, et cetera, that's obviously a transaction. The dowry is a transaction. The lesser-known idea of arras, the um, kind of a reverse dowry, is also a transaction. Um, you know, so this this society is full of transactions transactions relating to sex that are very open and explicit. They don't, you know, when they talk about a, a declaration case that's taken to court, I, which I wrote about a lot in my 2013 book. There's no bones about it that the person is seeking monetary compensation. That's the legal structure that's in place. So I feel like it's something that um, covers many societies. You know, you could argue our own as well, but definitely this the one that I'm writing about in my book. So it's just a really good umbrella term. And the idea is maybe there's some other person, another author, who, who could look at something like marriage in a more transactional fashion, although people obviously have done it going back to the 70s and 80s who studied dowries in, in this context. But it's just a really good analytical term that's a little bit more neutral. Um, and then I, in the book, I try to get into, you know, the terminology of the time and as they change over time. You know, but for an umbrella term, sex work or transactional sex, I think is um, a good one to use, even though it's more modern. It, yeah, I, I, I found that actually as a, as a lesson of how to to approach a, a historical phenomenon of three centuries, because in your book you are uh, talking about transformations of, over three 
hundred years. And a, mm -hmm. a, you start with the 16th century, um, these exchanges in transactional sex, in the transactional sex market that were modeled after a process of colonization. Can you explain for our listeners how did the transnational sex market looked in the 16th century? You talk about male and female panderers, brothels, and sex that was sold outside the brothel. How was it like in the 16th century, just after the, the conquest? Yeah, so um, I tried to, in that chapter, I did do a lot of stuff in medieval Spain to give the context that... Um, that uh, brothels were 100% legal and under uh, various um, authorities, you know, control and profit making and tax collecting, whether it be the local um, municipality or um, even a religious institution or the crown. So that's the context that we have in Spain, especially in the late 1400s. It's very interesting that the Catholic kings were really quite up on this. You know, um, it's just a very interesting aspect of medieval culture. So that's the context, the norm that Spaniards and other Europeans are bringing to the new world, that the public brothel is something going back to ancient times that's just kind of like, like a utility. It just exists in the town. So what's actually kind of interesting is that they didn't really bring that to the new world to a large degree that we can trace at all. The records for Spain are very prolific as they were regulating the brothel and applying all kinds of rules and just extremely prolific rec records that unfortunately don't apply to the new world. So my assumption is, or my theory is that there's actually an older tradition, older than, um, or more kind of grassroots than the the legal brothel, which is sort of a crown institution. And that's the idea of the Alcahueta, um, who, which is an Islamic um, tradition, uh, so staying under Muslim um, civilization, of the, of the um, like you say, the good translation, a formal translation is a panderer or the bod. Uh, you could even say, like, I don't know, madam, that doesn't really apply, but the person who's a uh, intermediary in your relationship. And I feel like that's even more traditional and more um, understandable for, for regular people is to have a, a woman, an older experienced woman, kind of be the person who negotiates your relationship. And that, that's an ancient tradition in, in Spain. And that, I feel, is definitely brought to the new world. And it's done in a lot of informal, domestic, and pretty hard-to-document cases. And of course, if you're going back to the legal history, again, the brothel is not illegal. The idea of selling sex outside of the legal brothel, like a clandestina, that is, that is illegal in Spain. But the alcahueta, the middle person, the intermediary, the matchmaker, is definitely illegal, going back to the siete partidas. So that is a thing that's very popular in literature and daily life, but absolutely um has punishments laid out from the Siete Partidas, right? So the people, I think it's one of those things where this is just how people run their relationships. They frequently have a matchmaker, and I'm talking about illicit relationships, not marriage relationships. So it's just the way that socializing works and, and the communication barriers were 
jumped over, the obstacles were broken down by having an older person negotiate your sex life for you, especially if it's outside of marriage, right? So um, this I found a few cases as, as in Spain, as in Spain they start to crack down on selling sex in the reign of um, Felipe II, Philip II, and so they start to have decrees about the gados públicos, public sins in the new world that, you know, had emanate from Madrid or what have you and um, go to the new world. Well, we start to see a popular practice being in the archives because we start to see it, the authorities cracking down on it. So that's the only reason it's in the archives. So I have a couple of scattered cases of these um, couple of older women, women in their late 30s, 40s, approximately, they don't always say the age, as well as the um, category, the male category, which is uh, Rufian or Rafin, and that's the, the man who, who is the um, procurer, the solicitor. And, and again, that's also highly illegal and heavily punished throughout the uh, Spanish Empire. So you start to see some cases. So my idea is that um, they, they may have had a brothel in Mexico City. Pretty hard to say. It's referred to here and there, but I don't think it was I don't know, it's sort of been lost to history in a sense, but they definitely had this more informal um, plebeian level intermediaries, both in a domestic setting like a servant type relationship or in a sort of a tavern setting where you have these rufian, uh, rufianes uh, kind of soliciting for their wives, which of course is extremely illegal and an excellent cause for ecclesiastical divorce in this time period. So you have all kinds of things like that going on. And in that chapter, also, there's a certain element of indigenous and African descent women participating in this job. It's, a, it's an excellent job um, you know, or occupation um, for a woman because it requires no overhead. You just have to be a good communicator between people, getting people together in these um, relationships. So, um, yeah, it's much more domestic uh, than you might see in these large brothel settings in Spain, contemporary Spain at that exact same time. I don't know if that covers kind of what you're asking. Yeah, uh, sure. Thank you. Uh, just, I, I'm just thinking before moving to the 17th century and tie uh, the question, the, my following question with all of the uh, different characters that you already presented, I, I just want to stop a, a little bit and ask you something about the seven sections of the Siete Partidas that I found mm -hmm. really interesting in a couple of pages that you talk about it. You said that while not criminalizing women whose all sex, eh, the Siete Partidas or the seven sections burden their children with a heavy load of moral con condemnation due to their maternal lineage. How did mm -hmm. that happen? Mm -hmm. I, I just found that really interesting. Yeah, so we don't have Nesiete um, Partidas from, um, what is it, the 1200s? <laughs> I, I don't always have these precisely memorized, but yeah, we don't have, there's no, um, they uh, mention the idea of manceres and women in puteria, women in the brothel, and this idea of manceres, that is children of brothel workers. Typically, you know, they're, they're looking at this from a, heteronormative perspective, so that's why the topic is, uh, or the people under discussion are women. So I make the argument that I think is pretty well supported that um, a lot of the Siete Partidas, 
not a lot of it is about criminal law. A lot of it is about um, inheritance law. So inheritance is a key issue as other historians that I cite have talked about. There's a lot of polygamy in this society, in this Renaissance, you know, early modern society is quite polygamous, um, not, not just for men. So a lot of great uh, historians of early modern Spain have studied this in medieval Spain. And so, and, you know, obviously uh, it's well known, inheritance is a huge um, concern for them, especially when your sexual interactions are so complicated, right? So how to determine inheritance is really the main concern of, of, of much of the Siete Partidas. So, of course, they want to make a point if you're having sex with a, pers- a woman in the brothel, uh, the inheritance laws kind of go out the window for her. And that's what you're talking about in terms of the, um, the prejudice, right? Because that's where she, a brothel worker will see um, a prejudice in that she can't claim child support. She can't claim legitimacy. And as historians of this period know, that's a, you know, that's the focus of a lot of um, court cases is legitimizing children, you know, getting them to be legitimate heirs, regardless of the parent's marital status. This is Van Twynham's work, of course, um, you know, being done anytime during life. And so I think that that part of the Siete Partidas is trying to say, we don't want any of these court cases if we have children of women who work in the brothel, because they're so-called public women. Uh, the idea is an implication of their so-called uh, promiscuity, right? So they don't have the same kind of um, moral ground that any other woman would have in claiming inheritance. So that's the part where you do see a um, moral condemnation of these women, even though their occupation is perfectly legal. You know, so that that's the aspect where you can see there's... Um, Within the structure of their time, there's prejudices against them, even though they're not strictly committing a crime by working in the brothel. Yeah, and, and even when all, all this uh, strange interaction between morality and criminalization is present throughout the story you are telling us, the 17th century start showing us uh, changes in the use of words that, according to your analysis, transformed women from morally corrupt or sinners to uh, prostitutes. And, and there is a whole uh, narrative surrounding the idea of uh, prostitutes. And it, it, it seems that that changed uh, the interaction in this uh, context. And you talk about Celestinas that you were already explaining us who they were when you were uh, talking about the Alcahuetas. But can you tell us how uh, these transformations in, in, co- uh, in concepts remove them from the colonial daily life experiences? The change of terminology when it started to kind of have a, like, like kind of what's discussed in chapter two? Yeah. You're saying, yeah, yeah. The, um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think that I have, I have had a theory that when there was a legal brothel, that might have been part of the problem with the Alcahuetas because they're kind of taking business from the brothel in, a, in an interesting way. So they, they were already extremely problematic. But um, one thing you start to see that, so of course the key transition is in 1623, we have, have um, Felipe Porto, uh, Philip IV, 
issuing a quite vague decree or command of we now shut all the public brothels in all of his kingdoms, right? So now that's, that has to sort of go underground. So it's my theory that um, the cases also kind of go underground. It's sort of a complicated thing, but you can't, in this time period, I mean, if they, if they have a lot of persecutions and cases against brothel keepers, they're kind of acknowledging that everybody's still doing it. And they don't want that in their records. So it's just like difficulty of using written records for the history of sexuality. They're purposely leading you on the wrong track, in a sense, because they want to hide what's going on in their society from the authorities. They're not trying to hide it from historians, but they kind of don't want to, with that famous thing over there, like, I can't carry out these laws, so at least we won't document it. So that's sort of the phase that's going on in the 1600s. And, um, and where I was able to find cases were cases then for that period, uh, pretty difficult, but a lot of them have to do with the Holy Office, which um, I've worked with uh, for Cartagena. So you have these associations of the brothel keepers with the alcoholics, and then with the um, sorcery, right, with sorcery. So that's sort of an aspect of, like, literally demonizing them, uh, making them exotic, marginalizing them, that they participate in love magic and, and sorcery, which kind of makes practical sense that they would be seeking um, erotic magic remedies, sort of for the sake of business. Um, so, yeah, so you start to see different ways that they are, they are criminalized with the brothel closure and the um, and uh, this association association with magic being a little bit more seen in the archives of the the records of the 1600s. So um, let's see. The other thing that that contributes to to uh, this trend that I believe is still going on in the present, uh, especially in our world here in the United States, um, is the the reason that brothels became problematic for the crown is uh, because of the syphilis epidemic, which really peaked um, in the late 16th century in Spain. So that's where you saw the peak number of cases. So this is where they were starting to say syphilis is a sign of the wrath of God. We have to respond to this and shut down the brothels or at least preach in them, have sent out the Jesuits to be preaching in a big civilian brothel. That's obviously going to take away a lot of the clientele because of that. That's not what people are looking for when they visit the brothel. They increase that by a desert. So that that's the <clears throat> disease. The idea of associating with disease is kind of at its preliminary but really important phase where we start to have this modern concept of prostitution. So hopefully get back to the question where it is about creating a legal professional designation for people that, that are criminal. So the words used before, like mujer pública and ramera, are more about a woman's general morality and sexual availability. They're not about a professional exchange of money necessarily, although there are terms that have more of a legal aspect, like barangan, um, more medieval terms. But... Um, so the, the cases that use ranera or mujer pública are 
more about sin, whereas when you start to talk about prostitution, you're simply more about a um, a uh, venal act. The, the money is more involved. So I tried to put a lot of thought in those various chapters into um, why that term comes up, but these are some of the reasons why we start to see a change. Disease as a concern, um, closure of the brothels, ongoing distrust by authorities of this figure of the alcoholic as, as a woman who's making money off of sexuality independently from any men or male authority figures, etc. I hope that somewhat answers the question. Yeah, definitely. And you know, it, it, during a, when reading your book, it is interesting to see that you do not treat a transactional sex or prostitution at the time as a as a unit or so, as something that just happened inside the brothel or in the street in, in the streets. You talk about the diversity of actors involved there, including the different uh, types of women involved in transactional sex and you talk about them in chapters three, four and five. Respectable mistresses, mm -hmm. courtesans and street walk uh, walkers. And all of them embody different kinds of exchanges in the sexual market, each of them characterized by particular interactions with other social actors. You talk about this mm -hmm. very broad level of exchange. And from all of these groups uh, that you explore, and I'm going to ask a little question about uh, each of them, uh, you said the respectable mistresses are the most ambiguous of any group discussed in your book. Why is that? They're the most what, I'm sorry? The most ambiguous of any. Oh, ambiguous, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely, and, and I'm glad that the, the structure that I was trying to have in the book is it, clear, you know, that I was, it's, you know, I, ha I have those three chapters that are all 18th century, where obviously, as the vice-regal historian knows, that that's where the records multiply in, in certain topics. So I was able to have three chapters on it, not barely one chapter, you know, <laughs> but, um, the, uh, yeah, the, um, so I try to divide those, as you said, like a real rough kind of class breakdown that other historians have, you know, done that we can say that there is that roughly that class breakdown generally in this society, you know, aristocrats, plebeians, and somewhat of a middle ground, not to say it's a middle class, but, you know, people who aren't neither aristocrats nor exactly plebeians, they're respectable, they could have a don or a donia, but not to the extent of being very wealthy or nobility or what have you. So, yeah, the, the thing that, that's really difficult in this book is the terminology, you know, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if people were critical of the use of my interpretation of um, terminology because there's always this, the, a good argument to be made that women are being accused of, of things and given labels that are totally inaccurate just because a husband or a neighbor or somebody of that nature kind of has a grudge against them. So I feel that I want to give um, credit sort of to the women that are respectable in the sense that, um, that that have a respectable reputation. I mean, it's a little unclear what they're actually doing. So I, I hope that in my analysis of the cases, I, you know, I sort of say uh, there's no, I mean, it's not a thing. There's no evidence that they're caught in the act or what have you. It's just suspicious circumstances according to their neighbors. So it's, a, it's like a little bit or very much open to interpretation. And that's why I think that um, 
that, that quote from that famous uh, poem, Ombres Necios, is so relevant from Sofana in this uh, Cruz because he's trying to point out in exactly this era of just a few decades or so after the official closure of the brothel, like the, um, just the sexual hypocrisy that permeates the society, you know? Um, so it's like the, all the um, confusing gray areas of what's honorable and what's not that, that a lot of historians have written about is what's going on there. And the fact that somebody can be in a house and be called a doña or even a doncella and at the same time have these accusations that they have lovers and, and whatnot. And it's really hard to find the evidence. Um, you know, sometimes it seems quite clear, but it's open to interpretation, um, you know, uh, a particular young lady has a man living in her house with her mother as a boarder. So, and then the man admits he's paying this amount, which seems rather substantial for his room and board. Uh, and it's neighbors are implying that this is a sexual relationship, that the mother is benefiting off of this person having sex with her daughter, but they live in a respectable sort of a no use. So, it's kind of difficult. Um, I, I feel like it's sort of a mistress situation, and it's really interesting when you think about it from the present, um, because this wouldn't necessarily seem like selling sex to us. It's just relationships where there's a transaction of some kind, money, food, gifts, sort of an, an informal entertainment venue that, that women are providing, a group of three sisters that I talk about um, they, they live in this house, interestingly named, uh, Casa de Maravillas. You know, what does that mean? That it has that name. <laughs> um, and it, it has seems, seems to have an informal casino. And people, uh, as I frequently say to my students, you know, whenever neighbors get mad, and it happens a couple times in my book, they hear the sounds of the guitars playing on the balcony at odd hours. And that's the sign of, you know, total moral turpitude that they hear these guitars playing. You know, it's but to me, it sounds really romantic, you know, to think of somebody out strumming a guitar and, you know, on the balcony. But that was a sign of maybe something illicit was going on in your house, too much partying, you know, what have you. So they're really, really ambiguous. And I just hope that readers can get that I'm, I'm not, I don't want to label the women. You know, I just want to, it's the same as when I was writing about the uh, brotherhoods, the cofadias. I'm just trying to use the labels over the time. And, not, and I'm not applying the labels as if they're real. I'm trying to analyze how other people use these particular labels to their enemies, to people who are bothering them in their neighborhood, and how the women in this case react. So, um, sorry, I had a slight interruption. Um, <laughs> we're good. Uh, just my daughter coming for one second. But, yeah, so um, that's the ambiguity of it. And like I said, I just want the readers to know that... Um, it, it is ambiguous, and so maybe another author will look at these cases and say, "I don't, I don't know what Nicole is talking about. This is clearly just a, a character uh, shaming situation, and she's completely wrong to call this transactional sex." So I leave that to those next person who reads those cases. No, and it's re really interesting how the cases enriched uh, the points you make, especially in order to see the constant confrontations that there are uh, among different actors sharing the same spaces in colonial Mexico. And in that sense, uh, courtesans really, really caught mm -hmm. the, eye, the eye of the reader. You explained mm -hmm. we are moving towards the 18th century by chapter four. 
and you said mm -hmm. that the idea of offending a society began to replace the concept of offending God. And I was wondering, what mm -hmm. is the relationship of this change in regards to courtesans and their constant display of wealth, consumption, and fashion in a very public way? Yeah, that, that's a really fun chapter to write. And I was really kind of connected to these famous figures at the end, like La Guerra Rodriguez and, and um, a couple of other very famous courtesans from the era, you know. So it's really fun to write that. So I'm glad that... Um, Enjoyable, and I've had other readers say they really enjoyed that too because it's kind of gives you this really high romance feeling, you know, Marie Antoinette type <laughs> the clothes and the wealth and whatnot. It's kind of glamorous, but yeah, the um, yeah, so there, I mean, it's always um, it's always a mixture of things. So, there, when we're even talking, the people are talking about um, this famous actress who. Others have written on um, Jose Ordonez. They're saying she's a danger to the Republica, which you might say, how, how can there be a Republica at this time in the Vaisalti? But they mean the public good. But what they're really talking about um, is the honor, is the sense of honor, in that for most of her life, for the majority of her life, uh, Josefa is an actress from Cadiz who comes to Mexico as a young teenager. Most of her life, she does not have, she's not a donna. But she's going out in this incredible wealth, um, especially to public events like a bullfight where even Jose Alves is in attendance. And she's kind of upstaging all these um, administrators and, and aristocrats with her plebeian ill-gotten gains, you know. So she's, she's kind of messing up the social structure by being so rich and so glamorous and so um, out there and flamboyant that that's the political aspect of it in a sense. So she's persecuted for um, violation of sensory laws, you know, these obscure clothing laws. And there's other women that I trace back a little bit further um, to the late 1600s who were doing this too. And the idea is like they're disrupting the social structure by being so rich and not being honorable wives or sisters or daughters. So, um, That's kind of where they're, um, the interaction with between honor and sin and shame and like a sense of this, a maybe new sense of a state, but obviously the state is still going to be based on uh, ideas of, you know, an honorable man, the king is the most honorable and just man in the kingdom, et cetera. So that same structure is going to apply even as you get more to an idea of a modern state. So, um, yeah, those women are really fascinating and, You know, they're, they're fun to read about because they're audacious and uh, showy and materialistic. And my, my favorite part of that is um, just to, you to use them, again, an acronistic term, but just how, how um, conspicuous they are in their consumption and how this is all about um, the performance of their sexuality and their presumptions of honor and how that looks good for, can in a way look good for their lovers, however illicit that they are. Um, just a whole cycle of, of performing and sexual posturing and honor and class and all that stuff comes up in there. So that's, that's my comments on that, but happy yeah. to talk more on that chapter. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really, really interesting, this interaction between 
public and, and private. And in the idea of a, a public woman, a mujer pública, I think uh, street workers have a particular uh, place in not only in your narrative, but also in the imaginary we have even today about prostitution. And you talk about them in chapter five. And I, while reading that chapter, I was thinking that the women previously discussed were under constant surveillance. You already talked about the neighbors, for instance. However, the street mm. workers had a particular interaction with the police due to the fact that being a woman on the street was not only considered an offense against morality, but also an offense against the new idea of good city government. So according to mm. the authorities, who were women on the street, who were street workers, and what were the different spaces they inhabited in the streets? What was the street in, in this interaction? Yeah, that, that's a, um, a great topic, too, that, that I think is very fascinating. So, you know, um, historians of this field have this uh, time period of the Bourbon Reform, where we're looking at this, uh, you know, many, many things that a lot of uh, key thing that people talk about for the cities, of course, is the um, sanitation, efforts at sanitation, lighting, uh, um, cleanliness, and the goal is always that European, uh, imitating European cities, um, technolog you know, sanitation, technological advances that, of course, as we know, goes on for centuries after this as well. Um, but yeah, so that's where you have... A, a kind of a new concept, or at least something that's newly recorded a little bit more, which is the Guadafaroleros or the Ronda, which are, who are the men who light the um, lanterns. So that's a lot of fun because we have the Ciro de Luces and we have these men lighting the lanterns on the street. And um, I have a, a, another chapter that I wrote um, for another venue this whole idea of a kind of a voyeurism on the street, which I think is kind of what you're referring to. Um, so we have these women, you know, this, this whole ideology of reform in the 18th century is about um, making the streets more European. So they're lumped together with the thousands of, literally thousands of drunks that are taken off the street by the Ronda and so they're basically the, the plebeians, the poor on the street, the people who occupy the streets as their home, their place of business, their place of social and even sexual interactions, the pulquerias where their social and sexual lives unfold. Um, that's where they are spending their time embodying um, their physicality on the street. And this is not what the reformers desire to have. So the only functionary who can carry out this so-called cleaning of the streets or the term um, policia, you know, deriving from polis, good government, the, the city, the policia, the, the government of the city is all that that term derives from. It doesn't derive from some kind of sense of safety or security or anything of that nature. It's keeping the city clean and well-governed. So um, the idea is you have uh, certain people on the street who are some reason or another, the the men in the ronda, the, the lowest level, what we might call law enforcement, again, perhaps a little anachronistic, but they're the ones who determine who kind of should be on the streets and who shouldn't. So it's pretty clear that the message from above is um, 
people who are passed out drunk uh, should not be on the street. So these men are gathering up the, the bodies that have been passed out. That's a lot of what they do all day long, according to their log books, the Libros de Reos. But they're also seeming to have this odd interaction with women that they simply say are um, encontrada en su ramo, which I uh, translate as found on their beat. When they're making the rounds, they encounter women, which I'm interpreting, my interpretation is soliciting. They see these women as women who they don't want on the street. So that's my theory, um, because, again, they're kind of hiding what they're arrest, what they're taking people into custody for. So it's a little uh, open to interpretation. Again, um, it's really interesting. And they're also arresting people on the street in various locations, and of course, in Bucarias, caught in a um, lewd acts. I mean, aqua cardinal, right? Yeah. And that, that they're just, um, that's where they're, or for some reason, this is determined as something to take into custody in this era at this time, and it's on record. So I believe it's people who they either know are soliciting our streetwalkers or people that are problematic for some other reason, but it's all up to those men who are just walking the beat. So it's really interesting because, as you said, this is similar to today where we have a, um, you know, law enforcement interactions, the interaction is at the lowest level. So those people actually decide policy in a sense. So that's what I'm trying to do in that chapter. Um, Using those records that are very interesting from their um, police log books. Them yeah, and this interaction with uh, the police that eventually are going to bring them with an uh, interaction with uh, the justice system in general uh, brings us to the chapter six when you are talking about the end of the colonial era, uh, the early 19th century, when the word prostitution appears frequently on the trials and judicial mm -hmm. records. And there is a criminalization and stigma already well attached to this concept. You found that several women mm -hmm. tried to avoid this label, tried to avoid being called prostitutes in the courthouses, showing what you have called multiple prostitute identities. Can you tell us more about it? Yeah, this is the thing that I think is really um, <clears throat> key in the history of sexuality, that um, identity is flexible, that we can't... What is assigned as an identity in a piece of paperwork We can't rest too much of our analysis on that. And, and that's generally in the history of sexuality, whatever kind of uh, sub-field of sexuality that you're talking about, um, gender, you know, sexual activity, et cetera. It's, it's always, as um, I think I'm quoting uh, Zed Tortorici, he says that the history of sexuality is not a straight story, which is kind of a nice play on words. Um, So their identities are malleable, but um, then when you look at sex work, of course, identities are so malleable in sex work, always, you know, maybe even especially in the present where every single sex worker, except some famous examples, um, work with an alias, you know, or multiple, multiple aliases, right? So I, I think it's really great in those um Two examples I was able to use for the early 1800s, we have people who, I'm trying to purposely make it confusing in a sense for the reader, because their identity is not clear. They have at least 
two identities. We have this interesting woman um, who wants to present herself as a respectable domestic servant for a particular um, military officer. And so she tries to use a formal name and put Sonia in it as a, a honorific. But the people reporting her are calling her um, La Sargenta. So that's sort of, anytime you have an alias or a nickname, I feel like there's something a little bit non-respectable about it, you know? <laughs> if, you're, if your alias or nickname kind of appears in the archives, I mean, you don't get that for the viceroy or what have you, or the archbishop. You don't, they don't have, men have some sort of jokey name, you know? So it's, just, it's sort of a key when she has a nickname, La Sargenta, what, what is that implying, you know? So, um, so I, I, I just try to, in a sense, show the readers that nothing is really clear. And yeah, and especially if the concept of a so-called prostitute is being hardened by criminalization or even a narrative of victimization, that when, it, when the identity is hardening is when the people are going to be more fluid with their, their own identities and the reactions to it. So they, if that makes sense, it's kind of a... Uh, reaction to the hardening is to be more slippery and harder to figure out what you are. Yeah, no. So that's what I feel like going on there. Yeah, no, definitely. And uh, just to to talk a little bit about uh, the present uh, in this last question, I would like to ask you about the role of history in current debates regarding commercial sex and politics regarding sex work. I noticed that uh, for your introduction and, and the conclusion, you used the, the book of Melissa Giragrant. I am not sure if I'm pronouncing her last name correctly. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, I celebrate that you try to bring the voices of uh, sex workers using a current term, uh, today, but also trying to, to look at their voices and multiple identities in the historical records. Uh, but how can we avoid to bring criminalization in an era where there was no criminalization? That is something you constantly avoid in, in your book. And how historians sh uh, should deal with, with this topic when doing our analysis? Yeah, I mean, what, what I try to do is really um, two things uh, that we've kind of talked about is, you know, use the proper terminology that they use. So that's why prostitution for earlier eras is, is just really, really long to use, you know. They, they didn't use it, so why should we, you know. Um, and, and that's a way of um, being careful about your analysis, right. And then secondly, what I try to do is, um, and it's really all in a footnote um, that I really tried to engage with the modern sex worker activist movement, which um, unfortunately is, is pretty marginalized in the U.S. and Europe versus in other parts of the world, like Australia, New Zealand, Africa, and other areas where it's much more mainstream. So I feel like... Um, I did my best because, you know, people didn't want it to be too presentist, so I, I did relegate a lot of things to footnotes, but I really think if people are talking about um, it, a topic relating to sexuality and there's a current, you know, political movement or agenda or activist agenda connected to it, like, you have to 
you have to engage with those particular activists if you're choosing to present the history of their topics, right? You have to be aware of the activism that's going on right now. So I try to lay out in the introduction and, and throughout some of their basic things, like sex workers are not obsessed with sex. That's not what they want to talk about. They want to talk about their reputation, um, you know, making money, survival, uh, different class divisions. Diversity is a key thing in, in sex worker activism because, of course, Today, the understanding is very obvious that sex work is not all heteronormative or cisgender identities are not the only ones that people are working with. In fact, the opposite could be predominant, you know, so the idea of a quote-unquote like fallen woman is, is not the way that or, or sort of rescue and survivors and all this kind of thing is not exactly how sex worker activists look at it because it's not on a, a heteronormative paradigm, you know? Um, so I just feel like when we're writing about something like that, that's still by a lot of people viewed as immoral and should be illegal, or we're having even more and more restrictions all the time about uses of social media, um, we have to engage with the current activists. And, and whichever side we want to choose, whether it's the um, prostitution abolitionist type people, or for sex worker activists. I mean, if we're going to write about a topic, we have to choose the political side in the present. You know, you can't just be kind of lost in the history of it. And that way, I think that scholars can learn the appropriate terminology, just like would be the case if they're writing about race or other topics related to sexuality. Definitely. And I think you were particularly skillful at doing this in Chapter 7, where you studied mm -hmm. these six colonial cases of selling sex that involved family members, parents and siblings, and brothers organized inside family homes. When we talk about age or these kind of abusive abusive uh, relationships, we and you mentioned that our reactions might be framed on our current standards. However, these girls, in some way, took part in transactional sex to help their families. Can you explain this more mm -hmm. in depth? Yeah, this is a lot of um, derived from really great uh, historians and theorists like Louise White, who um, in her book, uh, The Comforts of Home, which everybody on this topic has to read, I would say, is um, the idea that the, the most aggressive, ambitious sex workers are oftentimes the most loyal daughters because they, they're trying to make money fast for their families who are in some kind of um, desperate economic situation. Like in the cases I look at, of, um, the main one is during the insurgency years, so we're in a war situation, we're in the context of a war, and we have a family economic survival strategy. So this is the exact opposite of the way, the mainstream way of looking at um, selling sex here in the United States. Our typical view is somebody, or not, not mine, but a popular view is that somebody has been abducted or is a runaway or is in some other way so-called deviant or marginalized. You know, that's the classic sort of sociological way of looking at it. And um, 
And it's just when you when you're working within a family economy for survival, it's not that's not the case. The people are firmly ensconced in their family, and so that's where the their family setting. So that's where the authorities have a tricky, uh, you know, tricky balance beam to walk on or tightrope to walk on because the authorities, the Spanish authorities, as anybody in the field knows, are always concerned with, um, you know, reestablishing the, the correct family, the pata familia. So what do you do when your stepfather is the one who seems to be benefiting from your sex work? That That's obviously not a good family environment. So they have to, they're, "Quote unquote punishment or their reaction from the authorities to to kind of reestablish it by having the woman married off or what have you, and, and now everything is right again in the world. You know, nobody has any economic problems. Nobody's going to have to take these paths to, to solve their economic problems. You know, that's the the sunny view of it. But I just um yeah, I feel that uh, it's it's kind of an idea to correct some of these views. But um you know certainly uh, I mean we can extend it to a traditional marriage, that's a family, economic, and uh, social capital strategy. So, as I say in that chapter, yes, getting married is a great way to um, have your children, your, your daughters, have some social stability. But what if times are too tough and things are too precarious? You don't have time to wait around for a man who has a dowry who's available. Maybe you need the money quicker, now. You know, maybe you need it soon and you don't you don't have time for those formalities, so you have a different type of transactional sexual exchange that's more immediate. You get the money or the housing now or very soon, you know. So it's kind of like on a spectrum as opposed to deviance or criminalizing. It's like, oh, this is time where money needs to be in hand more quickly. And so, um, yeah, that's a difficult, I think, and I, I hope that I get some reactions or feedback to that chapter because I feel like that's might be pretty controversial to, to people um, from all worldviews. But definitely it's, it's worth it to discuss this uh, from a historical perspective. And I'm pretty sure we could be talking more about uh, your book, but we've taken up a lot of your time by now. I just want to thank you for being with us on the show and ask you what is next on your research agenda. Are there any projects you are working on right now that you would like to share with us? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really happy to have this question, of course, because we're always working on something, right? <laughs> never, never just sitting in a vacuum with nothing, right? So, yeah, I recently finished an article on a um, woman that I wrote about in my 2013 book, um, Paula de Agulus, who's a very famous African descent woman. So this was organized uh, by um, some other historians in uh a book called that's tentatively titled A Collection of Essays called Women Claiming Freedom. So um, that's in process. Uh, one of the editors is the um, excellent historian, uh, Tatiana Sejas. So I'd just say in a year or two, look for that book, uh, Women Claiming Freedom, coming out. And then, um, as I said, I've been working on this. Um, actually, I'll just say in that book, I try to, I mean, in that essay that I just sort of finished, I tried to um, look at this Paula Leogulus as a, uh, she's a sorceress, she may have some connections to some kind of transactionality. But I had to try to look at her and sort of her emotional intelligence, so I wanted to bring something fresh to that discussion. But the other thing I'm working on in a, a more larger concept is I just really, really enjoyed those police logbooks, or the, the Libros de Reos, the Ronda, 
And so the long-term project that I'm thinking about is, uh, and I'm working on right now in the summer, going again to Mexico City, is like understanding the history of um, street-level policing in um, Spanish America. So this could be really long-term, but not, and not about, not like urban reformers, that kind of thing, because that's been pretty well studied, but more like, more like, um, say, what people like Ben Vincent have done for the militia a while back, which is like, kind of what is the perspective of these men who are taking jobs as patrolmen or ronda? These are plebeian men, you know, this is sort of an idea of masculinity on the streets. Like, what are they doing with their time? How do they choose? Who to arrest? That's a question you had earlier. Um, it's just really fascinating to me um, because obviously it's a, a great topic for us today. We're really concerned about um, policing and racial identity. So I think Spanish America, maybe I can extend it further than Mexico if I'm lucky or New Spain, but I mean, New Spain and other places in Spanish America give us an incredible example of race and policing, you know, and the early, early origins of it. So I just feel like a historical commentary, historical commentary on that would be a very interesting contribution today, um, kind of kind of like what I did for this book. So that's what I'm inspired by right now. I, I completely agree with you. I think uh, this is a very necessary project and uh, both projects we're working on on sound really really interesting so anytime you want to talk about them please drop me a line and we can have another episode uh, on this pod podcast having you as a guest uh, i want to thank, Great, you thank you again for being on the show today i really really enjoyed this conversation thank you very much yeah, thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it and If the listeners want to get in contact with me, please uh, drop me a line through my um, email that they can track down to Oregon State where I work, uh, Oregon State University, because I'd love to talk to people about this topic. And I have already gotten a few emails from readers, so I'm really gratified by that. It definitely. We'll, uh, we'll post this on social media, so I'm pretty sure, and I hope somebody will contact you. Thank you very much. Take care. Sure, thank you. Bye-bye. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.